0: Hello, I'm Carmen Pugliafito and I'm pleased to have with me today Cedric Francois, who is the CEO of Apellis Pharmaceuticals. And we're talking about his presentation at the Angiogenesis 2021 virtual meeting. Uh, Cedric, welcome to Retina Synthesis.
1: Thank you very much, Carmen. Pleasure to be here. Uh, your, your talk
0: was intriguing, as always. And one of the things that you did at the very beginning was talked a little bit about uh, the work you've done in looking at the natural history of geographic atrophy. And I think our audience would be interested in hearing about that.
1: Yeah, thank you, Carmen. So this is something very important because um, we've, we've been trying to understand uh, really what the impact is of geographic atrophy on patients. And also, quite frankly, to kind of better understand which phenotypes predispose patients towards having a more... You know, severe disease or more aggressive disease versus those that don't. So there were two particular phenotypic factors that uh, we were particularly interested in. The first one was to look at patients with geographic atrophy that was either foveal or extrafoveal in nature. And on the other hand, whether patients with bilateral GA have an equally aggressive disease to patients who have exudative disease in one eye and geographic atrophy in the contralateral eye. we were very fortunate to work with Verana Health, which has access to the IRIS database. And we looked back at 69,000 patients with geographic atrophy that were tracked retrospectively, of course, over a period of two years. And what we found, which was a bit of a surprise to me, is uh, first of all, that the, the visual decline, now we're talking about visual acuity, in patients with foveal and versus extra foveal GA or in patients who have pure bilateral GA or patients that come with exudative disease in one eye, is not that different, you know, whether it's the initial vision loss or really the full progression to blindness. So that was an interesting thing. Um, another very interesting finding was that um, whether you look at visual acuity or visual function, uh, there too the impact was similar between these clinical phenotypes. Um, and then we were particularly interested in the evolution of exudative disease in an eye with geographic atrophy, and particularly whether there's a difference between patients starting off with GA in one or in both eyes or patients that already have exudative disease in the contralateral eye. And the take-home messages there were, first of all, that the the occurrence of wet AMD, which is a claims-based definition in this case, because it could be any type of exudation, The evolution towards wet AMD is quite common in patients with geographic atrophy. That's take home message number one. This is not a a weird or rare occasion. Number two, there is quite an important difference between patients that start with bilateral GA or patients that have wet AMD in one eye and GA in the contralateral eye. So what does that mean? In patients with pure dry bilateral geographic atrophy, we saw a progression of about 8% of patients over the course of two years. In patients with gn one and exudated disease in the contralateral eye, it was as high as 22% over the course mm-hmm. of two years. So again, important context for the retinal specialists to bear in mind since these two diseases that we think of clinically as very different share a lot of overlap and are probably immunologically quite related.
0: So you saw in the Philly trial, you did see eyes that developed neovascular uh, uh, macular degeneration. And uh, how does this these findings affect how you interpret the findings from the Philly trial?
1: Yeah, so I think there's two important points there. The first one is that exudations, again, are not an unusual occurrence. What was unusual in our clinical trial was the imbalance that we saw between the sham the every other month-dosed individuals and the monthly-dosed individuals in terms of how frequent these exudations occurred. Most important point in the context of Philly is that um, the types of exudations that we saw were always discovered during the course of the trial on an SDOCT finding, and then mm. you know, in some cases confirmed with angiography, but really an SDOCT finding, not a single case of classical CNV and almost exclusively small minor exudates where you could have argued should this have been treated or not. And definitely in the phase two clinical trial, there was a bias from some sites that were over treating these patients with anti-VEGF versus others that didn't. We correct for that in our phase three clinical trial, but the key take home message here is, you know, these exudates were not a safety concern, neither in the phase two or in our phase three clinical trial, there was an imbalance, probably more pronounced than what you would, ex- than what you should expect in a phase three clinical context, but still an imbalance and why is that happening? And here's what gets interesting, right? I mean, if we go back 30 years into the past, at the time we didn't have SDOCT, we did fluorescent angiograms and we made the distinction being qu- between classical CNV and occult CNV. And the reality is that at the time, as you know very well, we weren't measuring CNV, we were really measuring exudation. And at the time, we associated it, you know, based on the whole cast's work, with a type 1 membrane being associated with occult, and then a type 2 membrane being associated with classical, and that's why we call it CNV. I mentioned that because it is now becoming very clear, and a lot of that work was presented at the angiogenesis meeting, starting with Christine Curcio, that we know that there are a lot of patients with geographic atrophy that have type one membranes sitting you know, under, you know underlying their geographic atrophy where these, these neovascular membranes are actually not leaky. So if you were to do an angiogram on these patients, it wouldn't even show up because within 10 minutes, these neovascular membranes don't leak. So there, this is a fascinating observation and to many retinal specialists even, right? Something that is counterintuitive because we've kind of come to assume that a neovascular membrane should leak. What we think we saw in our phase two clinical trial were pre-existing type one membranes that became more leaky. And that we believe is part of the repair process that is induced by controlling complement in the back of the eye.
0: Assuming that APL2 is approved, do you think that pre-treatment OCT angiography is something that would be indicated in these eyes?
1: I think it would be something very interesting to look at. And you know, in our phase three clinical trial, we do look at that as well. Uh, but kind of the, the implication of what you're saying is that if you are a patient with a pre-existing type one uh, membrane, should you not treat that patient? Um, we'll have data in our phase three clinical trial to determine whether these patients benefit or not. We yes. also need to find out in the future with more data whether these anti-VEGF treatments you know, are really, truly a chronic requirement or not. I mean, you and every retinal specialist is familiar with the patients with exudative disease where you give a couple of anti-VEGF injections and no more treatment is needed, right? If you ask me today, what what would be my favorite form of advanced AMD would be to be a wet patient that requires a couple of treatments and then somehow goes into a quiescent state. And I don't know what the demographic numbers are, but it's probably about, 15% 15% or so of our patients, right? That, in my opinion, is is the holy grail, right? I mean, if, you, if exudation is not something that becomes a chronic problem for a patient, but something that may be a paraphenomenon as part of a repair process that goes to completion, then I think we're going to view these exudations very differently in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Has your view of the pathogenesis of geographic atrophy and the role of complement changed
1: uh, over the last Two years. It has not changed over the past ten years, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in, in all fairness, that that's that's you know just kind of things were confirmed the way we thought they were happening. That's as usual being more lucky than anything else, of course. And ultimately, the proof is in the pudding, and we'll see this summer what happens. But what I find fascinating is that you know, for those of you familiar with Apelles, is we have an ophthalmology program, but we also have a program in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria in PNH, mm-hmm. where we treat patients systemically with C3 and where you have red blood cells in circulation that are, that are not protected against complement activation on the surface. And here's something fascinating about complement that few people really appreciate. Complement C3 is this reactive molecule that floats around in the whole body and randomly reacts with every cell surface. And it binds covalently, irreversibly, multiplies on the surface like like paint or little gremlins multiplying themselves. And it puts the burden on the cell to clean up that C3 product from the cell surface. And a normal cell does that through endocytosis. So it internalizes that C3 product, processes it, and by doing that keeps its surface clean. And you could say, well, why why are we doing this? Well, because 400 million years ago, before we had adaptive immunity with T and B cells, the cells that did immune surveillance were monocytic cells like Mm -hmm. macrophages, like microglia. Um, And these cells go around and they probe. They look at every cell and they're like, you know what? If there's a cell that doesn't clean up after itself, it gets phagocytosed, it gets eaten. And that EAT me signal is very, very important in a range of indications. And where it's particularly interesting, and we found this out in PNH, is that um, there is a threshold phenomenon. You, as a cell, there's a certain tolerance for C3 product on your cell surface. But once you reach a certain threshold, that's when the attack starts happening. And that's where we believe, you, like a forest fire, which we often use as an analogy in geographic atrophy, right? It starts in one cell or maybe a couple of cells. And from there, it then spreads. It affects the neighboring cells, almost like an infection, which not just in geographic atrophy, but also in many neurodegenerative conditions we see occurring. And where in the retina that's particularly fascinating, in my opinion, is that the cleanup of that C3 product requires the the same cellular mechanisms that retinal cells need to do their job, which is the visual cycle, which requires a lot of energy, recycling of the membranes, etc. And when I kind of think simplistically maybe at the clinical phenotype of patients with macular degeneration, when we have drusen and we are at risk of developing advanced AMD, the first clinical hallmark of being at risk is dark adaptation issues. Mm-hmm. Dark adaptation issues in my my personal viewpoint of the disease is the cell starting to misfire. And at first, essentially neglecting the homeostatic function that it's supposed to do. But then once it just becomes overloaded and overwhelmed, it also starts neglecting the cleanup of that C3 product. And once you do that and you reach the threshold, you launch the process. This is crucially important, in my opinion, to also... I think in the future, understand how therapies need to work that target complement, Because what you need to do is restore the, the, the ability of these cells to take care of themselves. I do not believe that complement uh, control or inhibition is a symptomatic treatment. I think it is a treatment that aims to re homeostasis to the retina, where you, know, you start controlling how much comes in so that a cell can catch a break and start, starts cleaning up its surface instead of further accumulating. And then little by little, hopefully, you can like dampen that process. And that's a little bit in line with what we at least have seen in our phase two clinical trial with an increased effect over time and from month six to month 12 in the multi-dosed individuals, close to a 50% slowdown. But so what happens if you dose for two years or three years? Is there a path to finality where the disease stops progressing altogether? And That's certainly my personal dream, but we'll
0: see. <laughs> there was a a fascinating paper at the angiogenesis meeting where Dr. Shrineva Sasa Vasa Sada looked at your data from the Philly trial and identified areas of what he called nascent geographic atrophy, whose growth was favorably affected by use of APL2. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, this was a super exciting paper presented the first time as a late-breaking abstract at your retina in Amsterdam or virtual Amsterdam, I should say, early October. Um, And what we did uh, was we took a section, 500 microns, outside of the geographic atrophy area because many people, including ourselves, right, we are tempted to look at GA as that retina and outside normal retina. But of course, that's not the case, right? I mean, there's... a there's a zone where these cells are negatively affected, maybe already irreversibly so. They show up on your uh, angi- uh, sorry, on your autofluorescence, but there's nothing that can be done to bring those cells back. So we went 500 microns outside of that border area. And what we saw was that these cells that were affected with aurora, so the intermediate form of uh, retinal and uh, RPE atrophy, had a slowdown in the progression to complete C. rora um, uh, over the course of the treatment uh, and had a reduction of approximately 80% in the sham that would progress from I. Rora to C. rora to approximately 50%. Now, remember, this was just one cut, if you want, outside of the GA area. It'll be very interesting as we do more work to look at multiple cuts, see if that's truly kind of a phenomenon. The further you go, the healthier they are, the closer there. There's so much work that can be done there. And absolutely fascinating now that we start to study GA more with SDOCT um, and, and and less so just purely relying on autofluorescence.
0: Well, this is really uh, important work for us. And we all look forward to the result of the Derby and Oaks trial, which should be coming this year, correct?
1: Correct. In September, Carmen. So big, big moment. we hope, for, for physicians, for patients. And uh, for us, of course, as well. Well, we look
0: forward with it uh, with great anticipation. Thanks so much for uh, participating with Retina Synthesis.
1: Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Good pleasure.